Well, it was about 1973. And I was sitting in the back seat of the family sedan. And my mother said, we've got to go pick up your father. And so I thought, well, simple enough. I know what he looks like. I know that guy. But then we arrive at this place that I had never been before. And uh, there not one, but three Marines get in the vehicle with us. And you know, funny thing about people wearing uniforms, they all look alike. And I was intimidated by this because mom didn't say there's going to be other guys with your father and they're going to get in the back seat with you. And I'm all of about five, maybe six years old at the time. And so, uh, and so my mom says, scoot over and let these guys in. And so I scoot all the way to the left, you know, the old sedans. I don't know if this was our, I think this was our Ford Galaxy 500 maybe, or we also had a Plymouth Grand Fury 3 back in those days. And so those things had a, like a, the back seat was like a sofa, you know. And, and so I scoot all the way over to the left, right behind mom's seat. And these two guys that I've never seen before get in the car with me. And I have this vivid memory. You ever seen somebody that, that they've been sweating and they've got that little bead of sweat like dangling off the end of their nose and it's just about to drop, you know? And, and so I'm looking over at this guy and that's what I'm seeing. And, and I, I don't even know which one of these guys is my dad because I'm so afraid at that moment. These guys all have guns. And you might think, well, Greg, yeah, armed services armed forces, that does mean they're armed from time to time. But let me tell you, my dad had been in the Corps for about 18, 19 years at this point. He didn't bring his weapons home with him, okay, when he came home at the end of the day and sat down at the supper table, okay, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a gun with him. And so these guys all have, I don't know if they'd been requalifying at the, at the rifle range or what, but I just remember... Uh, wondering, looking at all these people, because Dad what, didn't normally wear this particular kind of uniform. He didn't wear combat fatigues to the office every day. And I remember leaning forward, scared to death, and I whispered in my mom's ear, I said, of course, <laughs> little kid, I thought I was whispering, right? <clears throat> and I said, which one's Dad? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and so the guys to my right, they just crack up. And they're going, which one's dad, you know? And of course my dad had to be embarrassed, you know. And mom's like, uh, the one sitting next to me, kiddo, what are you thinking, you know? And I have this vivid memory of that simply because I was so afraid. And because I know my dad was probably so embarrassed at that moment. He's probably got these couple of his co-workers thinking, well, it's not like the kid's, you know, not old enough to walk. I mean, the, the kid's in like kindergarten or first grade. He should know who his dad is. But that's what fear does to us, church. It keeps us from seeing clearly. It keeps us from thinking clearly. And so in that moment, afraid as I was, I wasn't seeing too clearly. 
in Matthew chapter 14, really the entire chapter, it could be said, has to do with fear. But we get to this incident uh, in Matthew 14, beginning with verse 22. Now to set the stage, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And his disciples were kind of afraid in that moment, not knowing what they were going to do with all those people who needed to be fed, who needed to be provided for and cared for. And so so the disciples have just seen something miraculous. Jesus says, you all get in the boats and you all go on across the Sea of Galilee. And I will join you later. And so Jesus did what Jesus often does in the Gospels, if we read them carefully. He goes to a lonely place to pray. Lonely. Another word could simply mean quiet place. He was by himself. He withdrew to a place where he could be alone and he spent time with the Father in prayer. And so we pick up here, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Then Peter, excuse me, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, I'm going to need some help advancing, thank you. In the Hebrew Scriptures, it was known that God had the ability to walk on water. In Psalm 77, in Habakkuk 3, in Job chapter 9, there are references to God walking or treading on the water. One of those passages even says that He doesn't leave footprints. I find that interesting. And so, people who would have read the Hebrew Scriptures as these good Jewish guys would have at some point or at least heard them read at the synagogue. It's not like they had their own copies. 
It's not like they had a printing press back then. But nonetheless, they would have been in the synagogue at some point and heard the scriptures read. It was known that God had the ability to walk on water. No one else did. And so you can imagine the terror in them, the fear in them, when they see this figure in the night walking across the Sea of Galilee. But Peter, in one of those moments where we see an example of Peter's boldness, Peter is the one, no one else does, But Peter's the one who seems to have enough confidence, enough faith to get out of that boat. Now think about that for a second. You've grown up on the water, as Peter did. Previous vocation was as a fisherman. At no point had he probably ever thought, I think I'm going to get out of the boat and see if I can walk on water. No, doesn't enter his mind. But in this moment, seeing his master coming across that lake on the water, Peter at least has enough faith to himself. Do what, church? Get out of that boat and start walking on that water. Now that right there takes some faith. That takes some courage. But then, like a lot of us, things start going not so well. We know that there's some choppy water out there that night. It's the, the text has told us, Matthew's told us that, that the, the, they were having a rough time getting the boat across the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's buffeted by the waves. And so I can imagine a little bit of that spray catching him in the face. He's seeing firsthand what the wind is doing to that water. And he's afraid. And what does fear do to us, church? It keeps us from seeing clearly. It keeps us from thinking clearly. Because... If he had been able to think clearly, he probably could have reasoned that, hey, I've taken this many steps on this water. But then he doesn't think so clearly. He's afraid and that lack of faith causes him to sink. And so, there he is needing Jesus to reach out and pull him in. Church family, what does Jesus say? What's the dialogue here? The first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the second thing he says is, come. And that's what Jesus is still saying to us today. He's saying, don't be afraid. Take courage. Come to me. 
Don't be afraid. Take courage. Come to me. It was in the mid-2nd century, 156 I believe, that this guy named Polycarp, now I know that's a funny name, in Greek it actually means much fruit. And if you happen to see this past Wednesday's video on our YouTube channel, our Midweek Encouragement, we're reminded of what bearing good fruit looks like, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. But Polycarp was an overseer in the second century. He was a seasoned Christian, 86 years old. And Polycarp, as an overseer, now that's simply what we would call uh, an elder or a, a shepherd... Uh, Some churches call them bishops. But that was Polycarp's role. He shepherded a flock and probably in his day shepherded multiple flocks. Remember, even in the mid-2nd century, Christians were still meeting in homes. But Polycarp was brought by before a Roman official and asked to denounce Christ. And Polycarp would not do it. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so Polycarp is is told once again, now you've got a choice here. You can denounce Christ and all will be forgiven and you walk away. But if you don't, you will be killed. And church family, the way they were going to kill him, the way they did kill him, was they burned him alive. But once again, Polycarp says... I have served him 86 years. And I'm not going to betray him now. He certainly never betrayed me. That church family, we talk about taking courage. Polycarp knew how to do that, didn't he? Polycarp knew what courage was. And so, in the face of a brutal death, a painful death, Polycarp was willing to say, Jesus is my King. In Habakkuk 3, and I'll just read this to you. I'm going to read from the Common English Bible. I hear my insides tremble. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. I tremble while I stand, while I wait for the day of distress to come against the people who attack us. Though the fig trees don't bloom and there's no produce on the vine, though the olive crop withers and the fields don't provide food, though the sheep are cut off from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. And I'm going to stop there for a moment, church, because what the prophet is saying here is that it's not going well. It's not going well. How did they feed themselves? They didn't go three blocks north to Powers Food Town. They relied on the food that was in the field. The fig tree doesn't bloom. There's no produce on the grapevine. The olive crop withers. The fields are providing no food. It's about as bleak as it gets. There are no sheep out in the pen. We don't have our vegetables. We don't have our protein. It is looking bleak. But then what is declared? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. The Lord is my strength. He will set my feet like a deer. He will let me walk upon the heights. I want to read from a book that Stacy got me for Christmas. It's by an Irish Christian named Padraig Otama. And he has this prayer for courage. It says, Courage comes from the heart. And we are always welcomed by God. The heart of all being. We bear witness to our faith, knowing that we are called to live lives of courage, love, and reconciliation in the ordinary and the extraordinary moments of each day. We bear witness, too, to our failures and our complicity in the fractures of our world. May we be courteous, excuse me, may may we be courageous today. May we learn today. May we love today. Amen. Amen. Church family, Jesus calls us to be people who take courage. And that's not easy to do in the day-to-day happenings of life. And I turn to the list that I've made in preparation for today. Because it takes courage to be a voice of calm when chaos is around us. It takes courage to be confident of God's promises when faced with uncertainty. The uncertainty of a diagnosis. The uncertainty that comes with a job loss. The uncertainty that comes with the loss of someone you love. It takes courage to forgive people that hurt us. Because then after we finally let go of anger and resentment, we're not sure what we're going to be left with. It takes courage to get our hands dirty. Loving and serving other people. It takes courage to let God be your refuge. 
But what does Jesus say to us? Don't be afraid. It's me. Take courage. Come to me. And then, in that moment when we fall short of taking courage, he says, Why did you doubt? What I hear him saying there, church, is, What's it going to take for you to trust me? What is it going to take for you to trust me? I laid down my life for you. I shed my blood for you. Why do you doubt? Take courage. It takes courage to turn your life over to someone else. But that's what He calls us to do. To be people who say, I'm just going to make a mess of this life. But I know that you, Jesus, can do something extraordinary with it. And so we offer the invitation. Whether you need to come to Jesus for the first time, or something has driven a wedge between you and Jesus, and you need to come back to Him, we offer the invitation for that reason. Let's stand together.